0: Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution by the Group of International Communists Reading Group Series. Today is Monday the 4th of April 2022 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today we read the second part of Chapter 14, The Control of Operational Life and Chapter 15, The Introduction of Communism in Agriculture. This week, have the new patrons, Nom das Noms, and Jerker Sandquist to thank. If you like those extra patron-only episodes, creating Discord over on the Discord server, head on over to Patreon and throw us a few commie dollar. I'd also really like to thank everybody for the amazing response to last week's episode, where myself and Donal launched our book-writing project. The response has just been really fantastic especially from those who've donated to the project. If you'd like to find out more about it, head on over to the website, theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com, and if you can, donate. Every donor will get a signed copy of the book upon release and get their names in the acknowledgements. The link to the site is in the show notes. Okay, let's join the discussion. Okay, and welcome to the 15th session of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution reading group series. Today, we are reading the second half of chapter 14, which is the control of the operating life part two, control in state capitalism. Okay, so let's get into this. So this is the control of communist life from an accounting point of view as opposed to last week, the architecture of state capitalism point of view. OK, so do we have somebody to throw their hands up here and read this
1: first section? Simon. Uh, control of the operating life to control and state capitalism. If we now turn our attention to the control of operating life from an accounting point of view, it is obvious that the form of, of this control is closely related to the legal basis of the society. The type of control is therefore determined by the new ownership relations. When the means of production are transferred to state ownership, the regulation of production and distribution also becomes a state function, and control appears as a top-down monitoring of compliance with state decrees. The state appoints an army of inspectors, accountants, etc. who are responsible for financial control. It is an unproductive apparatus that serves the state alone to ensure the appropriation of goods. To the extent that the state wants to make use of workers' control in this regard, it can only be a matter of monitoring compliance with the regulations laid down by the management. In state capitalism, therefore, worker control can never go beyond the so-called worker participation in operational units. Varga describes control under state capitalism as follows. The functional area of the organisational central management includes the control of the administration and financial management of state property a problem that has caused particularly serious difficulties in Russia. The frivolous handling of state property, of the expropriated assets of the bourgeoisie, arises above all from the greedy capitalist tendency of the entire society, whose morale was particularly undermined by the long war. However, a certain ambiguity about the new ownership structures also plays a role here. The proletarians who administer the expropriated operational units fall too easily into the belief that the units are their property not that of the whole society. This makes a well-functioning control particularly important since it is an excellent means of education. The problem of control was solved very well in Hungary, emphasized by Varga. Auditors who used to serve the capitalists were increased in number by training lawyers and secondary school teachers for this profession. As employees of the state, they were combined into a special section of the National Economic Council. The section was divided into professional groups so that the same auditors constantly controlled the companies of certain industries. The inspection covered not only money and material fees, but also the correct use of labour, the investigation of the causes of poor performance, or the unfavourable result in general. The auditor in charge checked the company and accounts on the spot at certain intervals, and wrote a report which not only revealed the errors, but also contained proposals for reforms. The auditors themselves had no right of disposal in the companies they audited. They only submitted their reports to the responsible organisational authorities. However, cooperation soon developed between the auditors, the production commissioner, and the works council. The auditors' advice was often followed spontaneously. Also, a magazine called Das Blatt der Revisoren was founded, which was sent to all expropriated operations and did much to clarify the organisational questions of the management among the workers the systematic control extended not only to the operations but also to the conduct of all people's commissariats what Berger calls here the control of production is the confusion of two very different things one is the control in the accounting sense the control of the operational books in other words the question of income and expenditure the other is technical control It is a question of rationalizing production the combination of these different functions is not a coincidence for state capitalism. They are an expression of the basis on which production stands. Profitability. Control card system, stamp clocks, tailor system, and assembly line are signposts to this rationalization, which is at the same time control, but is a control of superior power over the work that is made to serve it. Control of production here means controlling the producers to see if they're profitable enough to produce enough surplus, for the economic command control has the character of domination over the producers
0: okay thanks for that simon so in this section then we're talking about it under state capitalism the type of control is therefore determined by the new ownership relations so the ownership relations well like i don't know if it's strictly true because the ownership well i suppose it's kind of well, there there is a state ownership as opposed to I suppose a more social level of ownership, but basically the the relations, social relations in society determine what kind of control and production system you're going to have. When the means of production are transferred to state ownership, the regulation of production and distribution also become a state function, and control appears as top-down monitoring of compliance with state decrees. So it's a function of like the state and and not like a classless, stateless society being the point. So he goes on here and uh Varga starts describing how things went in the Hungarian Revolution. He talks here about, you know, this idea of like people in the works actually sometimes selling off the stuff the workers thought they owned it. They owned their factory and the means of production and the goods as opposed to society owning them. So that's something that's it's crucial to any part of any kind of a movement towards implementing what the GIC are talking about here. Okay. So In this, we have this idea of like these inspectors going around and these inspectors kind of seem to uh, audit all the books, make sure everything is there. But they also very, very much get in charge of implementing good techniques. So they become kind of the arbiter of production in the factories as opposed to the the workers themselves. Here we go. However, cooperation soon developed between the auditors, the production commission and the workers council the auditor's advice was often followed spontaneously so that these auditors end up becoming a very important kind of role where they're the tool of which the state uses to control the production system. Okay, so here he goes on to talk about what VAGA is mixing up here. What VAGA calls here the control of production is the confusion of two very different things. One is the control in the accounting sense, the control of the books, essentially, and in the other is the is technical control question of rationalizing production. Okay, so there's two separate functions here, and the auditors became those that embodied both. Anybody have any comments on this section, then, or is it all pretty straightforward? No hands up. Let's keep going. Let's go on to part B. Okay, so control
1: under communism. In the association of free and equal producers based on the calculation of working hours, control is of a completely different nature because we are dealing with different legal relationships here. The workers receive the buildings, machines and raw materials from the community to produce new goods for the community. Each operational unit thus forms a collective legal entity which is responsible to the community for its management. Public accounting for all operations is a natural consequence of this. As we've seen, the operational unit does not know income and expenditure. It can never work with surpluses or deficits. In other words, profitability does not exist under communism. Money does not exist. All transfers of goods are nothing more than a transfer by the gyro office, while nobody can ever receive anything other than individual consumer goods. No one can have an income higher than the products he can take from consumption for the hours he works. When we talk about the control of the economy under communism, we do not want to invent different committees to carry out this control. It is not that there will not be such bodies, but they fall outside the scope of theoretical research. We, therefore, only want to investigate what forms of control are directly embedded in the operating process of the economy we mean the way in which operational life controls itself without any controller. In the association of free and equal producers, the control of production is not carried out by persons or instances, but is guided by the public registration of the factual course of operational life. That is, production is controlled by reproduction.
0: Okay, let's stop it there because there's quite a bit going on in this section that I think is highly interesting. So we're we're getting away from this idea of a kind of a dominating bureaucratic class being the control function in the economy but we're getting down towards this way that the bookkeeping of these independent bodies is what regulates the society. Now that might sound very airy-fairy, that might sound like a whole load of, you know, woolly nonsense. But a similar thing operates under capitalism. We have independent operational units and they they are conditioned by different things they're conditioned by the value formed competition the market so what we're saying that control under the gic's idea of a you know worker council communism is that the bookkeeping element which is also an element which enforces and regulates capitalist production similarly it will for communist production but it does not do this. It does not know income and expenditure. It can never work with surpluses or deficits. In other words, profitability does not under exist under communism. Money does does not exist. Okay, this, this sentence here. In the association of free and equal producers, the control of production is not carried out by persons or instances, but it is guided by public registration of the factual course of operational life. So this is our general idea of the, you know, whatever accounting system that everything is entered into, that the the accounts essentially are the thing that regulates, allow us to regulate society because we have all our inputs, all our outputs. It allows us to see the productivity of each unit and it allows us to see which unit is not being productive. It allows us to see where fraud could be happening it allows us to understand the entire economy in a simple way. And I think this is one of the great beauties of this book. Just like this idea of the, the counting system of communism being like a, a way of self-control. kielcher has his hand up. I
2: get how you don't have a profit in this system. But I still, I, I feel like, and this is something that the book has sort of looked at quite a lot through the course of, of, of itself, through the, a lot of the other words it says that, that don't apply, It then immediately, when it does mention it, does a little bit of jujitsu to actually say, well, if they do apply, it's in a different sense. And I have that feeling again with income expen- and expenditure, surplus and deficits, because as I understand it, you, you could run a deficit. You'll probably get shut down if you do, because you're basically then if you're if you're producing stuff and no one wants it at all that's that's going to produce a deficit on your books, then ditto as surplus would mean that the there was maybe some adjustment would need to be made in the in what's being charged in terms of man hours presumably something needs to be recalculated. so I feel like a lot of these words that are very useful from an accounting point of view are pretending that they no longer apply, and I kind of feel that they probably would, but I get that profit doesn't it's just i I find some of the other language surrounding this not as easy to dismiss.
0: Yeah, I think the, the why they're saying surpluses or deficits here in particular are because, because of the plan, of the planned nature. Now, no plan is going to be perfect. So there will always be on the margins, you know, we produce 100,000 this year. Actually, the demand was 97,211. Okay, so there's going to be definitely issues of stuff that won't sell. Uh, but typically, I think a lot of that can be balanced in the future plans, or even I think, honestly, dynamically by uh you know kind that, of cybernetic that's, links.
2: That's exactly why an accounting system you will measure a surplus or deficit, so you can do that balancing. And I don't think it's it's recognizing that, that that you'd have to have a means for actually balancing these things, and and that's what you call a surplus or a deficit while you're doing that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's I, totally nitpicking.
0: Yeah, I think you know I I don't particularly like the, what they said there. I don't like the language that surplus or deficits. I think like. I suppose they they mean it in the capitalist sense, you know, and it's kind of, I think it's overstated. If they said profit and loss, it's enough to me. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing for us to understand. Emil?
3: Um, yeah, there are a few points in the book where I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting. And this, this is one of those quotes that reminds me of the word cybernetics that you just dropped. Basically, this, this is describing a feedback loop <laughs> before that concept was even around. Uh, because At this time, it would take another 20 years or so before the, the, the whole idea of cybernetics uh, started to uh, occur. And basically, this, this is describing exactly that, but more in a um, non-digital way.
0: <laughs> the way that cybernetics fits so perfectly to this idea of a communist economy, to me, is what kind of blew my mind. I you know, I think it's just so unbelievably suited to a system like this. It it just seems to me, you know, a perfect marriage. Simon, do you want to keep going?
1: Sure. It must be considered that communism does not produce at random, but works according to a predetermined production plan within which economic life will largely move. This production plan is no different from determining the scope of the various production areas. It, therefore, determines the amount of work that society will spend on the production of means of production, raw materials, food, entertainment, etc. These plans are not invented by economists, they're created from within society. Because consumption, by all kinds of consumer organisations, is directly linked to production, the companies know exactly how far they can meet the requirements for their products. If it turns out that the textile industry is not able to meet all the requirements, It'll make proposals for above-average expansion when the next production plan is drawn up. In this way, the production plan grows out of the practice of life. However, once this plan has been adopted, the various operational organisations must also remain within this framework and must not exceed their production budgets. This is one of the general rules that the economy is run by. In the general social accounting of the gyro office, in this reduction mirror of the operational life, We already have an immediate overview of whether each sector is moving within the production plan. If each operational unit is part of the gyro association, each individual operation is subject to this accounting control. If the entire production sector, for example the sugar industry as a whole, is affiliated, the accounting control of the individual operations falls within the scope of this production association. How does operational life control itself? It is the socially average production time that does so. In chapter 8 we have given an example of how the socially average production time can be determined. We saw there that not all operational units are equally productive, that one is below and the other above the social average. If production shows that an operation's production time is well above the average, then the objective production itself indicates that an investigation of the causes is necessary. It is also possible that the societal production time itself has been incorrectly calculated. If it was too high, a larger number of hours is passed on to society in the accounts than was consumed in the operational units in the forms of FCNL. However, where input and output power must always be the same, such a situation constitutes a miscalculation. The social average can also be calculated too low. In this case, this is reflected in the accounts, since the input quantity is greater than the output quantity. This is painful for the operational unit or the sector, since the companies cannot reproduce themselves. This means the production comes to a standstill. So this shows that the societal average production time is a relentless controller, which is noticeable every time the operations break through it, voluntarily or involuntarily. Or as one might say, production is controlled by reproduction. It is the laws of movement of the operational life itself that exercise control and immediately indicate a violation. The control of public operations does not offer so many forms of automatic control since the product is free for consumption. There's usually no socially average production time, and the operational books usually do not indicate how much product has been passed on. These companies operate according to the formula. F plus F, F plus C plus L. F plus C plus L equals service. The reproductive process does not act as a control factor here either. In this case, social accounting can only check whether the service continues to be within its production budget, i.e. whether it does not exceed its consumption of F, C and L. Whether the service is sufficiently productive cannot be determined here. Other means must therefore be used. For example, how many working hours are spent on one kilometre of tram transport, or a comparison of the costs of education in the different municipalities per capita, etc. But this kind of control does not fall within the scope of the investigations in this paper.
0: Okay, Simon. Thanks for that. Emil has his hand up.
3: Yeah, just a short comment on uh, the bit where the uh, companies cannot uh, reproduce themselves because they're too expensive, for lack of another word. This really means that you need some kind of buffer to to compensate for uh, mishaps or something like that. Because like you said uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, reality won't exactly reflect production, uh, so you need to compensate for that somehow. But yeah, not, not entirely sure about that. Yeah, well,
0: I think that just would be. Uh, so let's let's take for example the case where a factory has a machine and they depreciate the machine say ten percent each year. So it's supposed to last ten years, and the machine lasts nine years. Okay, and to buy the the machine again, they only have ninety percent of the money set aside for it, so that They're in debt. They can't buy the new machine. Production stops. So, what that means in reality is that the people in society who have bought the products have got them too cheap. Yeah. That they should have paid extra money because, you know, they were estimating the the depreciation for the machine. They didn't get it exactly right. So, what would happen in that situation, I think, is that you have your general accumulation fund would top up any errors in, in the pricing of these products. So, that should be a cost to society. So society got the products too cheap from the accumulation fund, it means they won't be getting as much productivity as they thought. Yeah. And I think also the other way, if the company has basically excess funds, say they thought the machine was only going to last 10 years and it lasts 15 years, that they have too much funds needed for their reproduction. And that would then go back into the accumulation fund of society to benefit society because society have essentially overpaid. For their product. So I think there'll be that's the way you would balance this stuff out. Yeah. So, like, that's a kind of a a, a tricky little bit. It was interesting to me the, the, the public operations, because they're not selling a product, they don't have to basically get their funds for their F and their C and their L from a sale. It's a point of consumption. So, it is not regulated in the same manner. But to determine whether this hospital, or that hospital, if one of them is taking the piss and say not doing so many heart operations, or they're not able to meet the needs of the community, you would be able to see in a kind of a physicalist sense, you'd be able to see they did so much of, you know, this type of operation and that type of operation. So you can have a, you know, a physicalist approach to monitoring productivity. What are the potholes like on the roads in this, you know, county council? Are they like Not bothering doing the roads to the same extent as they should. We can compare them to each other. So there is an element of control there from a physicalist approach. There's a sentence here now that I think. Let's read this sentence here. However, once this plan has been adopted, the various operational organizations must also remain within this framework and must not exceed the production budgets. This is one of the general rules of what the economy is run by. I, I think this is probably something that is. Uh, I think there is a need for general flexibility here above what the the plan gives. I think that there is the need for production to respond to, to consumption. And if that goes above the production budgets or if it's underneath the production budgets, I think that the operational units should be essentially allowed to do this within the context of whether society can actually allow that to happen so Simon
1: yeah one of the things that I really like about this thing is that they're equally concerned about people overworking as they are about people underworking which is a fundamental transformation from capitalism where surplus is always a good
0: so in in what sense do you mean here about the surplus here what's piqued your interest about surpluses here
1: well uh, let me just get up the sentence to be honest I'm actually I on where exactly it was. It's a, it's, it's a bit where they say this is one of the general rules that the, that the society operates by. I might have gotten the wrong end of the stick, but as a general point about the whole framework, if, if they're, you know, from, from this point of view, a surplus is as much of a problem as a deficit. So say, for instance, that you can see a pattern of, in, in, a, in a particular sector, a pattern of production looking in excess of what the demand is, then you could dynamically have a check on that saying, sorry, ye lads are producing way too many shoes than we can wear. So maybe you need to ease off on the working.
0: Maybe you need to grow more legs. Do you ever think about like that, Simon? <laughs> uh, no, it, definitely. I think, I think more so in the area of, like, say if you're a capitalist firm, like your surplus, your profit is brilliant. That's an excellent sign. The more profit you're making, that's a great thing. When it comes to this, however, if you're making a shed load of surplus, that actually shows you that you have overpriced your goods, and from a societal manner, it's actually a bad thing. And um, so, definitely, I see where you're getting at, Randy.
4: So, one thing I'm curious about is how how like technological inventions or you know uh, an improvement in the production process would be reproduced into the economy. Because like if you know a factory figures out some additional you know aspect of the process that makes the good take a little bit less time or resources to make then how would that be like like wouldn't that be creating a surplus but then would that just be rolled back into the economy the next year in terms of like like lowering the societal average of the cost or something and like you know reproducing that you know improvement to other factories
0: i i think there is an issue like we're going to get into it a a little bit as in certainly regulating the factory level for kind of fraud for so for example you're getting a new machine. Like if if you're working the shoe factory and society goes, okay, you've used up your old machine. Here's the new version. This machine works 20% faster, you know, so you're either going to have to produce 20% more or, you know, maybe work 20% less, whatever you want, lads. But this is the new machine. I think that's quite easy for society to, to regulate. But then you get into kind of, I think what you're talking about, which is like work practices. Say like, in a warehouse, some dude figures out that, oh, if I stack them in this way, it's like 10% more efficient and I can do it all, all my work in less time. Yeah, it like, seems like that would be seen as fraud almost. Well, you know, like, like, how do you propagate the the methods as opposed to the, the machine? I, I think there is a way there in which labor can try to get... You know more pay than than they're deserved. You know if everybody in a factory figures out a new thing and they go, look, lads, we do this. We keep on the quiet about it. We get the same wages, boys, and we work ten. You know, ten percent less. So I I think that there is certainly certainly that bit is uh, I think an area where something could so- something could happen. Is that a a big enough thing to Is that something that would could cause the productivity in the system to be screwed i i I don't know i think as well i think i think you probably have that same dynamic though within capitalism itself uh workers you know and it doesn't stop the productivity of capital and i'd also say that the solidarity you know and mechanisms and the you know kind of nature of the participatory nature of the economy i think itself would work to dampen that as opposed to say capitalism but you know, perhaps not. Maybe in in larger capitalist firms, a big Amazon type thing, the, the thing would be noticed and it would it would be spread by management. You know, there might not be the same control mechanisms for you know this communist society for this type of improvement as there would under capitalism. Keelcha,
2: you just know there'd be YouTube channels that would spring up and would demonstrate oh, totally. perfection how to how to more efficiently load these crates using the forklift and everyone would be lapping it up because people take pride even in a capitalist society. But I, I think it would be really interesting because in a capitalist society that as a, I think it was Chris was saying earlier on, was it Chris or who was, who was speaking? Simon, sorry. is a tendency to overwork people to make more profit. Here there's, there's a little bit of a tendency of well, like how little can we work and, and get away with it? And, 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 I don't think it's completely true, but I think it's it's because I think people do take pride just in if they're going to go to work, they're going to want to do a full day's work. But I, I think it is an interesting interesting problem to have and to explore further.
0: So when you say how little can we work, is in like reducing our working time? Not overall? the time,
2: no, because obviously you get paid for your working time. But while you are working, there's going to be a tendency to say, well, I don't need to work very hard because I still get paid the same number of hours at the end of the day. And if overall we're not making steel as efficiently or widgets as efficiently as, as we could. It doesn't matter because overall in the whole of society, these things will, you know, balance out what we do is not going to have that much of an impact. And Ru- arguably, arguably that's how that's how Russia <laughs> um sort of stagnated in some ways.
0: On the first part, like we all know YouTube's getting the wall after the Rev though. So uh I don't know. Podcasters are getting the wall as well. So we could be in trouble. Patrick, do you want to yeah patrick do you want to make a comment on, on your stuff in the chat i think patrick's not getting the audio right now well okay i'll just say what patrick said in the chat and then people can talk about it because i don't know what he's talking about in the chat here patrick in the chat whose audio is now working has said you would need sops randy you've been chatting in the chat there what the hell is an sop
4: a standard operating procedure for the factory
0: Okay, but would they not be determined by the, you know, the the factory themselves, if we're looking at a, you know, self-management kind of ideal?
4: Yeah, and then I think it's about how, like, you need the information available to kind of, you know, get the best SOPs you can. So I think it's a question of, like, how you would propagate that information. But, like, honestly, I think, you know, whoever commented on the youtube thing like i think that legitimately could be kind of an answer in terms of just you know if the information is available then the factories can kind of make a decision on creating that sop but i just think it's i i want to figure out how you would you know propagate advancements in the procedure that would just be helpful from like a societal level without the management having the profit incentive to you know propagate that
0: yeah, I suppose, like, if we have this idea as well of job complexes where people have, like, you know, work in, in different, perhaps even in different factories, that these things will probably not be able to be contained within one workplace. And if you have, like, everything is open and, you know, society is generally open <laughs> informationally, it seems likely it would require a lot of pressure and cost to the organization to maintain the secrecy of a, you know, production method. So I think, you know, I think that like workers do this stuff under capitalism all the time. You figure out some quick way so you can get your job done. So then you can just DOS and go and like fall asleep in the the toilets or something. (laughs) Uh, One thing I had as I had the idea for as well here that struck me was that like, not only should we be able to see like the F and the C and L or whatever that goes into each product, It also seems to me that each workplace, people should be able to see, like, what are the fixed capital and the, you know, the the labor and the circulating capital that this factory consumes, that you'll be able to, like, have a view of a firm. You know, so let's say you had two hospitals and hospitals might be more or less productive based on, like, you know, their buildings are older or newer or they got different machines. But you should be able to, like, as you know, just an interested member of society, look and see what they have in this hospital. That that all of that should be easily and open, not just the transactions themselves, but you know, also a, a visualization of that individual operational unit. Donald, do you want to say something about that? Because you're all, you're going on here in the chat about not bill of goods. What
1: is it? Bill of materials. Bill of materials. Yeah. Yeah, so just exactly the point that you're making. You know, in the interests of transparency and of kind of spreading the most efficient methods throughout the economy very quickly, you can just have, in the same way that everyone can see in this public kind of ledger, everyone can see the production times, basically the, the cost of production of all of the goods and all of the input goods that make up the goods and so on. You can also have, you know, very, I think, Easily, the amount of information is probably quite small. It's just lists of the SOPs, the bill of materials, the BOMs. And in that way, yeah, I suppose it adds a very difficult dimension for anyone that wants to do anything really underhand, because if what you're doing just doesn't line up with the economy in general, it should be pretty clear. So any more thoughts then on
0: this section here? I think this was a very interesting section that kind of gets into a lot of the kind of the things that jumps out to person immediately when you try to describe a workers council and people will say like, what about this? What about that? I, I think it's an excellent little view, a snapshot. I don't think it goes into all of the various components, but it does give a general overview about how the accounting can be used by society as a system of control. Right, Randy. Chapter 15, the introduction of communism in agriculture. A, the development towards the production of commodities.
4: It is a well-known saying that every new society is born from the womb of the old. Capitalism, in its rapid development, creates an ever more powerful and concentrated production apparatus, which on the one hand reduces the number of the bourgeois who have control over the apparatus, and on the other hand, increases the army of proletarians immeasurably. This development also creates conditions that bring down capitalism. The necessary condition of this growth of the proletariat is increasingly intensive exploitation, while the insecurity of existence keeps pace with it. See, Marx, wage, labor, and capital. Under these conditions, there's only one way out for the proletariat. Communism. If we look at the development of agriculture alongside this industrial development, we get a different picture. Notwithstanding all the prophecies that agriculture too must concentrate, that large agricultural syndicates will oust the small and middle peasant, little is to be noticed of this development. Not only the medium-sized farmer, but also the small farmer has asserted himself, while there is no mention of development in a sense mentioned above. Yes, there have even been a sharp increase in small-scale farming. In the eyes of the theorist of state communism, this development is very disappointing. Work in the industry is taking on an increasingly social character, while that of the farmer, in their opinion, will remain isolated for some time to come. In industry, operational units are becoming more and more mature for communism on what they understand by it. In agriculture, on the other hand, they do not want to mature for central state administration. From the perspective of state communism, therefore, agriculture is and remains an obstacle to the introduction of communism. In our opinion, however, Capitalism has brilliantly implemented the objective conditions for communism in agriculture as well. It is only depends on how one sees things, whether one wants to put the administration of production in the hands of the central government offices, or whether one thinks it's carried out by the producers themselves. To show that agriculture is already completely ripe for communism, we will give a brief overview of the situation of operational units as they are in Western Europe, America, and Australia. We will then see that agriculture has become thoroughly capitalist and the production is the same as an industry. One of the characteristics of capitalist production is that it is a commodity production. Commodities are utensils that the producer produces not for himself, but others, for society, and his work is therefore social work. In the social process of metabolism, all producers of commodities are therefore connected. They live in complete interdependence and thus, in reality, form a closed whole. The old farming business knew the production of commodities only as a secondary matter. It was a world of its own in which almost everything it produced was self-consumption. The farmer was his own tailor, bricklayer, textile manufacturer, and food supplier. So the farmer did not work for others, for society, but for his own family circle. The farmer brought very little to the market, which meant that he had very little money in his hands, but which at least gave him an independent existence. The industrial production of commodities broke through this isolation. On the one hand, it knew how to spread a stream of cheap products over the earth. On the other hand, the effect of capitalism increased the rent, while the state also demanded even higher taxes. It is not our task here to follow the process of breaking up the closed domestic economy. We only want to ascertain the result, which is clearly visible to everybody. The peasant farm needed more and more money to meet its obligation. But it can only receive money by acting as a producer of commodities, by putting more product on the market. There were two ways to do this. Either the farmer himself had to consume less for the same productivity, or he had to increase the productivity of his work. But to consume even less, as a farmer of old grist and grain, is one of the impossible. Increasing productivity seemed to be the only solution. This is the point where economists have been mistaken in their speculations about the future. They assumed the same development for the agricultural enterprise as for the industry. In industry, productivity was always increasing through the merging of capital through new, more productive machines, which could only be used in huge enterprises. In this respect, they thought that the same concentration process should take place in agriculture. This meant that the small and medium-sized farmers would have to disappear in the main, while the agricultural consortium would play the decisive role in agriculture. The small and medium-sized farmers would all be made wage labor of the share capital in agriculture. So our economists were very wrong in this respect. It is remarkable, however, that the industrial development, which was to bring about concentration in agriculture, itself prepared the ground for a very different development of agriculture. It was in particular the motor, artificial fertilizers, and agronomy that managed to increase the productivity of work enormously without leading to this great concentration of capital. Modern fertilization made the nature of the soil less important. The yield per hectare grew enormously, which enabled the farmer to bring many more goods to the market than in the past, while modern transport could provide an all-around service. At the same time, as the yield per hectare increased, a phenomena of enormous importance took place. As soon as production is based on science, the phenomena of specialization appears with compelling force. The specialist is a caveman. He only sees a small strip of light from space, but he sees it very sharply. So we can see how the farmer sets himself up to supply only a certain product, but in order to achieve the highest possible level of quality, which is possible with the current state of science and technology, and his financial resources. According to the specialization, he then sets up his business, i.e., He procures the tools he needs for the special product. This is the current state of agriculture in Western Europe, America, and Australia. The farmer has thus become a producer of goods in the full sense of the word. He no longer puts his surplus on the market when he has provided for his own needs, but his whole product. He creates that which he does not consume himself, and he consumes precisely that which he does not produce himself. So he does not work for his family circle, but for others, for society, and so his work is now social work. The closed domestic economy has been destroyed by specialization. The peasant business has gone over to the industrial production. Although the farmer may have remained the owner of his land, his position has deteriorated enormously. Certainly, he can do good business when the economy is favorable, but now he is completely dependent on the vicissitudes of the market. His uncertainty has kept pace with his specialization. Of course, this did not remain hidden from the farmers as they tried to avoid the fatal tendencies of their specialization. To this end, they founded farmers' cooperatives which gave them better control over prices and also enabled them to procure machines for working the fields and processing the harvest collectively. As a result, the entire agricultural enterprise is highly concentrated, even though there's no question of an industrial concentration of the farms.
0: Okay, thanks for that. That was great reading, Randy. Okay, so this is interesting. You know, it shows the development of the farms didn't follow as, well, at the time when this has been written, didn't follow the same trajectory as really what they expected, the economists expected. But like in, in, I think in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, certainly it has followed a a concentration that it mightn't have initially followed with with the implementation of fertilisation and higher yields. Like if I if I just like look at the, I live in the middle of the sticks, right? The farms around me, my next door neighbour was a far, was was a farmer. They sold up. To the right of me, they had a few fields. They rent them out. Down the road was Kichut's, his farm. The son's, when he died, they sold it. His cottage is now going to ruin. They only live a few hundred yards down the road, but they can't make the money to support themselves from a farm. Go down the road a bit further to me, the Brackens, none of them farm. They rent their land. So in, in nearly every, every direction from me, small farmers that were self-supporting, I would say I would say 80% of them in my since I was a kid now would not be full-time farmers, which is I think we're seeing the same kind of stuff happening more in America as well. We're seeing, you know, mega farms and agribusiness. So this is a kind of historical part of the book which which is not so relevant today. But I think the thing that is highly relevant today is that the farm as a unit, like there are still, like, I think probably in Ireland today, to be a full-time farmer, you probably need 100 acres. Uh, so probably something like that to make a, a living from it, or at least over 50 acres. But what it, it allows us to see is that because they are no longer self-sufficient, the farmers are usually specialize in one or two crops. They, and they sell them into the market, all of their produce, like 90 I would say a minimum of ninety-five percent of their production goes to the market. So we see that they are essentially operating as like little little small businesses. So that allows them to be a different force within society in a say a revolutionary period to they were in, in the Soviet Union, where you could go back to your to your farm and they were essentially self-sufficient. You could like you say, screw the screw the factory, screw the CDA, I'm going off to live. A self-sufficient life this this sucks like that's not there anymore and it also means they're allowed to be integrated into this idea of an operational unit Emil
3: yeah just a short comment because I think this uh, text is still very relevant although not for us uh, I mean in the Netherlands where I live there's perhaps three or four percent of the population uh, active in agriculture which is kind of crazy because the Netherlands is actually the second biggest exporter of uh, agricultural products on the planet. It's a real, kind of ridiculous situation. But anyway, it's a, uh, what what I do think that, that it is very relevant for is the developing world, where the population still in a much larger number is active on, on the field, so to say. So, yeah, I, I think it is very relevant, although not for the West, not for the developed world, maybe.
0: But, like, even... Even the developing world, how many of them are self-sufficient anymore, Emil? Like, they're well, still
3: selling to the market. They, they are not, but that's the point. That's why this tax is relevant. Because the, maybe just to clarify, so the, the, there's this whole question going on of how to relate to work, how to relate to, to, to the peasantry on the left, uh, which is still relevant, and which different strands of Marxism have answered in different ways. Uh, Lenin had a specific answer, Trotsky had a specific answer, Mao had a specific answer. And the question remains basically unsolved because the the whole premise is maybe mistaken as this uh, bit of text is uh, laying out quite clearly, I think. So yeah, that's, that's why we need to consider the peasantry as part of capitalist production. That's the point of this text and that's why it is relevant.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably also an issue of like that. I think the mentality of small farmers is probably quite close to petty bourgeois as well. That makes it makes it kind of difficult for them to appeal to communist kind of proletarian kind of feel. You know, certainly if I think to the typical small farmers that I know around where I come from, I think they would be quite similar to small business owners in their outlook. Not too many raging lefties in there. Randy has had his hand up.
4: Yeah. What I was kind of thinking is that, you know, a lot of like the improvements in yield that it's been talking about came from, you know, the motor artificial fertilizers and agronomy. But I think that one thing that's important to think of now is that, you know, because it said modern fertilization made the nature of the soil less important the yield per hectare grew enormously which kind of looking at modern agronomy and kind of the move towards regenerative agriculture and permaculture and the like like i think that that kind of makes you shift your focus to actually trying to improve the soil and the specific land as much as possible and then only taking a sustainable amount from it so you can have, you know, long-term success for your society. So I think it's kind of important to weave that in whenever you're talking about how we're going to industrialized farms because, or like how we're going to, I guess, so communize farms. You know what I mean?
0: I, I think that the, that kind of idea of regenerative agriculture at the moment is very niche, you know, and it can only ever be a niche under like a system like capitalism, I think, unless it gets to the stage where the industrialized agriculture becomes a threat to the existence of the system itself. So I don't know how much pre-revolution, depends on, you know, obviously what happens, but say like if there's a revolution in today, how relevant it would be. But certainly post-revolution, I can imagine it could be entirely uh, related to like, you know, the the post-revolutionary landscape whereby we want to change dramatically the structure of our agricultural production systems, going to uh, non-monocrop, you know, uh, polycrop types that are typically more labour intensive. You might actually see an increase in the return of the percentage of people working in ag. Kielce has a hand up.
2: I was just going to mention that despite the massive reduction in the number of people working agriculture in ireland and the Netherlands and the rest of the eu we've got this enormously dysfunctional problem where i think estimates are like 50 percent of the people who do work in agriculture are migrant workers and i mean you could organize them it's very hard to because they're so exploited sometimes to the extent that it's 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 practically slavery but i i think it's just something we've got this massive blind spot for in society in terms of, of how we think about how agriculture works Yeah, just that that it's not at all like what's described here, but it's also massively problematic in other ways.
4: What is the migrant labor that's kind of used for agriculture in Europe? Because, I mean, you know, it's primarily Latin American
0: over here on the West Coast, but Eastern Europeans, Polish, Mm -hmm. uh, Lithuanian, Belarusian, Romanian, Bulgarian, Bulgarian, yeah.
2: I'm looking at a, a, a paper here that says Sweden likes to import Thai people. You know, it's nuts, it's all over the place.
0: Wow, I did not know that. Like it's weird isn't it because like just from my experience of Irish agriculture that actual like that kind of intensive food picking kind of agriculture is not a big part of of Irish agriculture. Around Dublin you might have some like, you know, fresh lettuce kind of stuff, but typically Irish is all like, you know, beef and sheep and 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 wheat and stuff like that that's not actually it's pretty mechanized doesn't need that really horrible labor you get a lot more of it in england like i haven't heard of it in ireland at all not that it's not there Mm -hmm. simon
1: yeah i was just gonna say i spent a lot of time in county wexford and uh i've actually seen this change in my lifetime which is you probably know tom that wexford is famous for the strawberries
0: i do indeed (laughs) yeah
1: yeah and they have the strawberry festival every year and all that but when i was a kid arrived in Wexford I was quickly initiated into initiated into you know the whole community goes and picks the strawberries and you get a few quid per bucket of strawberries you know now it's entirely people from Eastern Europe down there picking the strawberries and that's that's only happened in the last say 10 15 years or so yeah ever since they allowed since
0: since the kind of eastern europeans joined the european union like there was only two nations in europe that allowed so they had this idea of like Germany didn't want to be flooded with cheap Polish workers. So they, Mm -hmm. they had like a 25, I think it was 25 years where you don't have to accept any, anybody. Simon, I'm just going to mute you there a bit windy. I think it was 25 years where you could say you're not allowing workers in from say the, the Eastern Bloc after they joined the EU. And hopefully that the, the economies would be more kind of, um, Equalized with the Western economy, so you wouldn't have a flood of, of cheap labor. But the only two countries, as far as I know, that signed out of that ability to do that was Ireland and England. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I've actually done that strawberry pricking myself. I went and picked strawberries when I was probably nine or 10 in trim, and uh, I got kicked out of the place myself, and my two mates, <laughs> for eating strawberries. I
1: suppose going from uh, child labor to it, migrant labour uh, I, I know moral progress you know <laughs> <Yeah>. because <but, laughs> it, it literally was child
0: labour and it, it was hard work and they paid you nothing I think we were getting like 50 pence for a, like a, a crate of strawberries that would take us at least an hour at least an hour to do
1: oh yeah I remember working an entire somewhere to get a second hand bike that cost me about 20 quid
0: <laughs> you know yeah that's that sounds about right <laughs> Oh dear.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: Let's give Randy a break here. Who wants to take this next session here? B, the significance of, of this development for the proletarian revolution. Patrick.
5: B, the significance of this development for the proletarian revolution. The course of development outlined above prevents the formation of a large number of land proletariat, even if it is still much larger than the number of owning peasants is still far from being in the same proportion as the urban population. Besides, the class antagonisms in the countryside do not come to force so much, precisely because the small farmer himself works with his family members. If ownership in the cities has led to pure parasitism, this is uh, not the case with the small and medium-sized farm. This makes a communist revolution much more difficult in the countryside than in the cities. But the conditions are not as hopeless as they appear at first sight. Certainly, there are a relatively large number of owners in the countryside, but they know very well that they are not much more than, than the toiling agent of bond capital. At the same time, the burden of uncertainty weighs heavily on them. No doubt it remains true that the owning peasant will never be a champion of communism, but he rejoices in the struggle of the working class against capital what the attitude of a small and middle peasant will be in a proletarian revolution cannot be said with certainty. The only way to find out is to examine the attitude of the peasants and the proletarian movements in Germany in 1918 to 1923. We do not have more experience material yet. We will come back to this later. The fact that the peasant has become a commodity producer was of the utmost importance to the proletarian revolution. This is still too much overlooked within the working class. As a result, we hear all kinds of reservations about the opposition that the peasants would, would place against victorious working class, which in reality no longer makes sense. They're still based on a situation as it was in the past. For example, it is constantly pointed out that the working classes should convince the peasants because the cities depend upon the countryside for their food supply. This is undoubtedly true, but the farmers today are also dependent on the city. If the farmers do not deliver their products to the cities, then they are as much at the mercy of hunger as the working class, paradoxically, as this may sound. Despite everything, the uh, peasant must sell his product. Otherwise, he would not be able to, to feed himself because He only produces what he does not consume and has to consume what he does not produce himself. One also often hears the remark that the farmer would rather feed his product to the animals than supply it to the revolutionary working class. This too is a misunderstanding, which is due to the outdated view of the closed domestic economy. The cattle farmer has only cattle apart from the byproducts and nothing else. The arable farmer may have grain, but no livestock. The chicken farmer, several hundred chickens. The vegetable farmer, only a certain number of vegetables. They are all specialists. Besides, one also hears the fear that the farmer will refuse to to cultivate his land further, i.e. that he will try to return to the closed domestic economy. But he cannot do that either. Even if a farmer cannot go back a century and make everything necessary himself, because he has neither the necessary skills nor the necessary tools. Once the socialization of work has been completed, no one can escape it any longer and a return has become impossible. No matter how much one turns or twists the matter, the peasants are on the social ship and must go
0: with it. Very good. Thanks there, Randy. Okay, so getting more explicitly into this idea of the peasant, you know, the, the farmers essentially being commodity producers and don't have the ability to return to a self-sufficiency like within my parents lifetime my, my parents were both my parents both came from small farms five kids in each now my cousins do not farm that land that supported a family of of five five children so what supported a family like my father's who came from a small farm as well i don't know how the hell they sent like all the kids to boarding schools. My father went to one of the top boarding schools in the country from like a, a not with a scholarship. I don't know how they managed to fund it. No idea. Like, uh, you know, maybe they were dealing heroin or something at the same time, but it's like like they did it from a small farm. They, they were able to afford that. Like today there's just an absolute impossibility. Like, and, and none of the children farm the land. Like one of them, my mother's uh, brother, did farm the land, but now his son doesn't. You know, they rent it out. I think they have a few cattle, maybe. But it's like, you know, within 50, 60 years, we've gone from this situation, you know, that the, the total commodification of, of of the agriculture and the total de-skilling and specialisation in Gennaro bands. So it seems to me that the the question of the peasant, the farmer in the industrialised West is not really an issue for us as a revolutionary class. They're trying to do a revolution in Holland or Ireland or the UK or America, Australia, Japan. Like these developed Western countries, it is not an issue. It might still be an issue in the developing world, although we must say that a a developing world communist revolution is likely to be stymied unless there's one in the first world. It's kind of how I think about it, to be honest, you'll end up like Cuba. So I I feel like that there's less of an issue there, but I also feel that the the commodification of agricultural production is something that definitely goes in a revolutionary class's favour. It it means, I think, that the farmers can get out of the weight of debt and they can essentially still be the the governorship of their own land. And if they get labour time income, Instead of just what their goods can sell in the market, it would likely be a large increase in their income. So I think that the class could shift from one side to the other reasonably easy. They're not the reactionary self-sufficient peasants of old, I don't think. Emile.
3: Yeah, they are not the uh, reactionary self-sufficient peasants of old, but they are now the reactionary uh, peasants of, of new. <laughs> they are now the capitalist uh, peasantry, the, the capitalist agricultural uh, owners of the land, uh, employing lots of super exploited uh, migrant workers and stuff like that. <laughs> but what the text is also uh, describing, it might be a, some kind of in-between situation. I mean, it is describing the, the commodification of uh, agricultural work. But it is also saying uh, somewhere, uh, oh, the chicken farmer with a few hundred chicken. Uh, so that's cute. Uh, <laughs> modern uh, chicken farms uh, don't they have a bit more than a few hundred uh, chickens, I suppose. At least here in the Netherlands, I'm not sure, uh, elsewhere. But yeah, the scaling up and, and the concentration of, of agricultural capital has seen a huge flight over the last, well, 80 years or so.
0: Yeah like I I'm I'm kind of I'd be interested in seeing what percentage of agricultural production actually has the kind of indentured kind of labor model that you know fruit picking and your know, vegetable picking has like I think that's probably quite a small proportion of agriculture and I would also say that while the agricultural the the farmers the mid-sized farmers are probably socially conservative they are also though highly organized. Like there is no more organized sector, say in the Irish economy. I just I know about Ireland that there is no more organized sector in the Irish economy, apart from business, than the farmers. You know, and they have a history. Look, my father worked in a cooperative, you know, a farmer owned cooperative. There is a history, you know, in the not distance past of like cooperative behavior in these industries to protect themselves you know, from the, you know, the dealers in uh, the commodity buyers. Uh, So I I think that it's a a mixed bag. I think Simon had his hand up.
1: Yeah, I was just actually wondering if we might, under a labour time calculation system, see a reversal of the tide of people going from the countryside to the city, because that's largely due to the uh, lowering price of the commodities that farms are producing. So people can't make a living off the... Less and less people can make a living off the land and they have to flock to the city for work. Whereas in a labour time accounting system, I think, especially if you were thinking in terms of balanced job complexes, and such like that uh, people might decide, people from the cities might decide to uh, return to the countryside and maybe, like people were saying earlier, you know, going in the direction of these things that are now niche in capitalism, but which could like permaculture and so on, that, but which could become more of a mainstay of people's lives, occupying a lot more people, but people whose lives would actually be improved by being out in nature and closer to the land and so on.
0: Yep, that's, uh, definitely, that definitely sounds like something that could could occur. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'd be quite a uh, take-up from the cities. Uh, we've got a few hands up. Let's go. First, I think, is Patrick.
5: Yeah, I just want to second what, what Emil said about, I mean, despite the industrialization of agriculture in the West, still the the majority of the actual food produced globally, there's still a lot of peasant production. And and at the same time, I mean, a lot of those peasant producers, the ones that, that are in the West working in agriculture, I mean, it's almost like the farmers here are are totally reliant on on the actual just skill set of these peasant farmers because it's not those skills are not being reproduced in the western populations i mean all the all the farm scaling is is going towards mechanization so like you know i'm looking at here in california like with the when when they limited the amount of farm workers that, that came during covid it's like it's really putting the squeeze on, on, on all the farmers here. So like they don't really have a plan B there's only certain types of agriculture, you know, like your grains, your pulses, which you can really take out the human labor through, through technology, like in the produce sectors, it's not really possible. So, I mean, and and I, I really think that in general in our economy right now, that, that that's one of the biggest kind of like, externalities that's that, that's not really accounted for and i i think on, on a different you know different economic system that 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 would probably weigh a lot more heavily on the books
0: if that makes sense absolutely yeah culture as well has a hand up
2: one of the interesting things not being discussed here or, or, or by us is the is inherently seasonal nature of agricultural work it'd be really interesting to sort of explore that more in terms of like how a communist society would deal with the better because you literally don't need all of the people in the country all of the year and that's that's why like we sort of underestimate how many migrant workers we've got because most if you go like you know six months of the year or so that the, 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 those people are back home scratching a living uh, wherever it is they came from and then they move from farm to farm picking various crops in different places at different come at different times of the season and it's it's hugely disruptive way to live and to work and and i think that's it's ripe for for organising in a better way and being a, having a more socially productive way to to do it, um, and, and also just wanted to say that Tom, you were saying that that farmers are, are really organised, but that's not been my experience. They're, my experience in the lifetime, the reason people are getting out of farming is they've been squeezed by the consolidation of the um, supply, uh, the people who buy their products, the supermarkets essentially. So I mean Tesco is much much more organised than farmers, and that's why they're able to squeeze the prices down and, and force so many into larger and larger businesses with smaller and smaller profit margins.
0: Yeah I I definitely get that impression that it's not as organized in the UK. I'd also say that like as well in the UK most of the farmers don't actually own their goddamn land aren't they? They're tenant farmers which is like that doesn't really exist in Ireland. They're, you know farmers own their land and they may rent some so I think structurally it's different and I think the farming organizations are incredibly strong in Ireland so there's obviously scope for, for variation but Definitely, you do see that, yeah, like in the UK, the farmers, you know, as an Irish guy living in the UK and you see the farmers, like they they seem like very unorganised compared to uh, at home. Maybe it's because we're closer to being a fully pleasant society than the UK, which industrialised further. Maybe they just command a greater power in society because of that kind of link to the land that people kind of still kind of feel. Like I'm sure there's plenty of people like, born in Dublin, whose parents were growing up on farms, like a huge percentage. Simon?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say, we also had Michael Davitt in the Land League, which uh, made a big difference in redisputing the big estates and so on.
0: Yeah, like the land reform and the land commission after the post the War of Independence as well. So there's there's lots of stuff. And the idea of, you know, like the absentee landlord and the famine and all this stuff, Pretty shitloads of this probably plays into that kind of irish link to the farm which is not uh universally seen maybe across uh, europe but like just look to french farmers are incredibly organized they don't take any shit like if the politicians don't do what they want they literally just drive up loads of horse shit and dump it in their office <laughs> they don't give a damn you know but you know the in the in the english scene or the british scene it's much more likely that you're renting of some goddamn feudal landlord and you're bowing and tipping your hat to the to the gentry uh, as you go to your your church every week or something yeah they seem to be quite a reactionary bunch in the UK they all voted for Brexit as well which is incredible they were literally being told by the Brexiteers in the conservative party we're going to bring in like cheap steroid australian beef where they can just like let in the outback it's this land is so cheap they want to sell it at half the price. it will be great. And all the farmers are going, yeah, that'd be brilliant. They all signed up to it like like morons. It's, it's kind of incredible. Yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll continue with C for next week. And we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 16, which is the economic dictatorship of the proletariat. But well, apart from that, I think we'll uh, wrap up and say a good night. And I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Kielce in the chat says, a bit off topic this week, but I enjoyed the comparison of UK, Ireland, Dutch agriculture. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, Kielce, like, uh, <clears throat> is the Irish is the Irish forestry board called, called Kielce? It's Kielce. It's Kielce, is it? Okay, yes. What does Kielce mean? Kielce means woods. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Different word altogether. Okay, Grand Soul, sure. I'll see you all next week. you'd like to help fund the book that donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning please head over to the website the classless where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released so head on over there today and help us with this really important project This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister Podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollars. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.